Are you passionate about creating a physical product, something you can touch, feel, or taste, and then get paid for it by those that love what you've created? Well, the Product Launch Rebel Podcast is the one for you, where you get insider tips on how to spot an opportunity, manufacture your product, get financing, and achieve the independence you've always dreamed about. It's time to crank it up with your host, product developer, investor, and founder of VentureSuperfly.com, John Benzik. Greetings, Product Launch Rebels, and welcome to the Product Launch Rebel podcast. I'm John Benzik from VentureSuperfly.com, where we help double your entrepreneurial courage. Even if you don't know what you're doing, please visit our VentureSuperfly.com website and visit the contact page to join our mailing list. Today, I'm interviewing Justin Gold. He's the founder of Justin's, which is a brand of nut butters, peanut butter cups, and nut-related snack packs. We're a big fan of Justin's at our house. My wife has been buying the product for a few years now, and I can tell you that we all love it at the Benzik household. To learn more about Justin's company, visit justins.com. Hello, Justin. Thanks for being here, and welcome to the Product Launch Rebel podcast. John, good morning, buddy. Thanks for having me. This is going to be great. I appreciate your time. So, Justin, within this podcast, there are three segments. The first is called Give Me the Basics, which helps set the context about your company for our listeners. The second part is Let's Get Personal, where we get into some of the more personal topics about what it's like to start a business. And the final part is what I call Tell Me How, where we'll get to the heart of the matter on issues that aspiring entrepreneurs want to know now to help them move forward. Justin, what do you think? Are you ready for questions? Fire away. All right, let's go. This is going to be great. Justin, tell us the story. How did you originally come up with the idea to start Justin's Nut Butters? You know, it's... It's fascinating. I, I didn't go to business school. I, uh, I'm not in the food industry. Didn't grow up, you know, in the food industry. To, to get, kind of give you a little bit of context and background, I grew up in Western Pennsylvania, and I was studying to become an environmental lawyer. And I was graduating with a degree in environmental policy, and I was preparing for the LSATs. And my senior year, I went and I interned at a law firm, and a nonprofit law firm in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And I was really excited to, to get to work and to get my hands dirty and to get ready for law school. And as I was interning, I just – I did not love – I wasn't passionate about the amount of the, – the kind of work and and, and the, the kind of impact I could have being an environmental lawyer. And so I, I dropped out of my LSAT course, graduated with a degree in environmental policy. And, uh, and it was really – really hard for me because when you're you know when you're young and and you think you've had you think you have your your future figured out and then you you pivot and and, and everything you thought was going to be isn't it's it's really really challenging and so I moved to California to get as far away from Pennsylvania as, as I could and and to really see more of the country and I spent about a year on the west coast near San Francisco waiting tables working in restaurants and then I decided that it was you know I really wanted to get back to college and and be in a university setting and and get a graduate degree, and I wasn't sure what in or for, and so I decided to move to Boulder, Colorado, where I could gain residency and 
and, you know, and go back to school as soon as I realized what I was passionate about. So I moved to Boulder in 2001 and I'm waiting tables and working in restaurants because it's a great way to, to, you know, put food on the table and to, to meet like-minded people. And so I'm, and at the time I still am, you know, I was, I'm a vegetarian and I was eating just a lot of peanut butter and almond butter for protein. And I was, you know, just kind of honestly shocked that peanut butter was only available in really two varieties, smooth or crunchy. And there was one or, or two almond butters out there, but they didn't taste very good. And when I ground my own or I, when I ate a handful of almonds, it tasted amazing. And so then I just started for fun just to grind my own nut butters. And so I had this old food processor and and I would keep a little journal and I would add everything from you know, dry roasted peanuts and almonds and cashews to maple syrup and chocolate chips and fresh bananas. And maybe I would try dried bananas or dehydrated bananas and cinnamon and pumpkin pie spices and all these just fun concoctions. And they tasted amazing. And so amazing, in fact, that I, you know, I would, I would put these empty jars that are all numbered in my cupboard and refrigerator and my roommates would always be stealing them and eating them. So I started to put my name on the jar, Justin's. And and then, you know, at some point someone, you know, says, hey, these are really amazing. Have you ever thought about selling these? And I didn't know anything about business. But what I did know was that a lot of businesses started with business plans. So for me, being an academic and, and right out of maybe a year out of college, it was really fun to get to go to CU's business school's library and kind of research, all right, well, you know, what is a business plan and, and how do I, how do I write one? And what are the things I need to think about? And, and so as I'm writing this business plan, I literally stumped on the first section, which is what type of business entity do you want to be? C-Corp, S-Corp, LLC, sole proprietorship, partnership, you know, and I, I didn't know the difference between any of them. And so rather than, you know, do the brain damage of trying to figure out, you know, what's the best corporate structure for my enterprise, I, you know, I said, you know what, I bet there's a few food companies here locally and they probably have done, already done the research. Let me just start talking to people and see, you know, what they did. And, and John, my, my eyes were just totally, you know, opened to, to this whole food scene, natural food scene in Boulder, Colorado with companies like, and I had no idea, companies like Celestial Seasonings, White Wave, which are the makers of Silk, Horizon Organic Dairy, Izzy Soda, Wild Oats at the time was one of the, one of the leading natural food retailers. Boulder Chips, uh, who else is out here? Rudy's Organic Bread, right? These are huge national natural foods brands that are right here in a tiny little town of 100,000 people. And so I started to meet with and talk to and learn from, you know, executives and field folks and managers and directors of all these companies. And it really gave me an education on not only how to write a business plan, but how to how to grow a business and how to find investors and how to how to get into the farmers markets, and uh, you know, and, and that's just kind of how everything kind of got started. I, I can go into, you know, actually manufacturing the product or actually raising money and and getting my first account and all of those things, but we can cover those topics later. But that's how I got my start. Well, it's it's a very fascinating story. I'm curious to know as you were going through that process and had that inkling to go out and talk with other manufacturers, other founders, what or what was that within you that gave you the curiosity or the courage to go out and talk to 
those other players in the market. I think that is such a rare trait to have. I talk to a lot of budding entrepreneurs and they just don't have that instinct or that curiosity or that that moxie. What is it that you have that made you just go and do that? Well, I think it's it's two things. And one is you nailed it. It's this sense of curiosity. I think you have to be someone who's not satisfied with the way things are. And your curiosity gets the best of you. And you start asking yourself, well, why is it like this? How did it get like this? Can it be better? Why can't it be better? How can it be better? Who's doing this? Who's doing that? And I, and just as, as a young age, I've always been just curious how things work and why they work the way they do. And and then honestly, when things aren't efficient or things don't taste good, it really frustrates me. And so I, I guess I, I, you know, I have this innate ability to just always be curious and wanting to learn more. And then I, I got to really credit my education. You know, I went to a uh, a small liberal arts college where I was able to um, to learn a lot about you know, organizing field trips and being on a field trip and asking questions about, you know, you know, when I was in, in school, we visited nuclear power plants, we visited uh, incineration plants, landfills, dairy farms, meatpacking plants, hazardous waste facilities. And it's just so interesting to go to these places and, and meet these professionals and ask them questions and understand how their business works and, and where or if their business model is broken. And so I think I gained the confidence from school and learning to ask those questions. And then the, uh, the curiosity came just, you know, through, um, through being, you know, who I am, but I'd say the hardest thing is just finding these people. And, and the one thing that I think a lot of entrepreneurs have to realize is, you know, just because you're a, you know, a, a startup technology company and you're a founder and, you know, Bill Gates is a founder doesn't necessarily mean you have the credibility to to access Bill Gates. And so I think what what a lot of these entrepreneurs have to do, which is what I did, is you start at the bottom and you learn from the people who are working the street. And you learn from the people who are, you know, just cutting their teeth and just getting going. And then you ask who their managers are and then you kind of earn and rise up through the ranks of the organization. So when you get to the to the point where You've you know really gotten all the information you need about how to bring a product to market and how to raise money. That now you've kind of earned the opportunity to to meet with some of these founders, and you can ask the right questions and you can get right to the heart of the matter. And so I see a lot of young entrepreneurs who kind of want to, I don't want to say take the easy route by going straight to the founder because sometimes a founder can can help you avoid a lot of mistakes that otherwise you may not know about. But a lot of times, too, if you're a founder, you start with the younger companies, the smaller companies who are just getting started, who are still figuring it out. And you talk to those founders and you learn from their mistakes and then you keep progressing to bigger and bigger organizations. And you have to earn the opportunity to meet with some of these really large founders. And I'm still like a medium sized you know, company. So I really don't mind when when entrepreneurs come to me and, and ask questions because that's that's the only way that I got to where I was. And on all of us entrepreneurs, we love it. And we always find time because we all feel the need to pay it forward. I think that is such great advice. When I started a snowboard clothing company many years ago, I started just walking into retail stores and asking the buyers at those stores how they got the clothing into the store. They in turn 
introduced me to some sales reps that were walking the street and they in turn introduced me to some manufacturers and it was just a great way to learn from the bottom up. Exactly right. Tell me, how many retailer doors do you serve and what types of retailers? You know, I, I honestly don't keep track of how many doors we're in. Too many. It's Yeah, I mean, well, it's it's interesting because we've, you know, we have we have some customers like Starbucks who have thousands of locations and we have some customers that are our, our best performing customers like Whole Foods who are in hundreds of locations. So I, I don't think it necessarily is is a quantity of stores you and it's the quality of stores. And so, you know, we're not in every grocery store in America and we may never be in every grocery store. So I'd say that, you know, that the, the quality of our, our customers are, you know, we really do well in places that have a support natural foods and have, you know, a natural foods dedicated section, or they have, de- they have natural fo- foods throughout their stores and they really have an emphasis on it and they really want to promote health and wellness. And those are the stores and places that we really thrive and, and do well in. And I think that there's a, a trend and a fundamental shift going on where a lot of stores and retailers are making that shift, which I really appreciate. They certainly are. Justin, most entrepreneurs go into business with a set of assumptions, and many of those assumptions prove to be different from what they expected, thereby making them scramble to make changes in order to survive. Regarding your product uniqueness, did your original assumption about the product's uniqueness prove motivating to consumers, or did you discover a different selling proposition after being in business for a while and after getting some customer feedback? Yeah, no, I, I learned the whole way. And so the first thing I learned was most consumers don't notice new things at grocery. They just don't. And I was really naive to think that by launching a product and getting it into the store, that that was the hard part. That once a consumer saw it, they'd be so intrigued by it that they'd want to buy it and bring it home. And when people walk into a grocery food store, they're on a mission, they have a list, it's a, it's a time crunch, they want to get in, they want to get out, and most people don't stop to notice new things, let alone try them or buy them. So that was, that was one fundamental flaw that I had. I just figured getting in the store was the hard part. The, the, the second flaw that I had was people don't necessarily try things they don't immediately understand. And so what I mean by that was, you know, the first challenge I had was with the, the jars of peanut butter, almond butter. We were we were priced higher. We had unique flavors. We had a unique texture. And, and our jars just weren't turning the way that I thought they would turn in the nut butter section because people, they have their go-to brands, their store brands. They're much cheaper. The quality is much different. And that's what we're, who we were competing against. And so one of the things that I uh, came up with was an idea while I was on a mountain bike ride was, you know, how do I become more disruptive in, in this space? Flavors, yes, quality is disruptive, but it's not driving sales. People aren't, it's, you know, they're not coming over in, in droves to just buy our products. So, you know, I was on a mountain bike ride, I was eating an energy gel, like a goo or a power gel, great products, but I wasn't craving, you know, sugary carbohydrate at the time. I was craving protein and no one was delivering this protein experience in a packageable, flexible squeeze pack. So I thought that was a really fascinating, great idea. So I spent about a year trying to find a contract manufacturer. No one would make it because of 
you know, cross-contamination of their equipment with allergies. So, I was, so rather than give up, I was excited and inspired to be my own manufacturer and, and have no competition. So it took me about another year to borrow $75,000 from my roommate's parents and buy my own squeeze pack machine that was 30 years old, figure out how to work it, wire it into a kitchen facility, buy the packaging, bring out, fly out a technician, get this thing running, get it working, make the world's first ever, you know, non-hydrogenated, you know, organic, natural, whatever, peanut butter and almond butter squeeze packs. And then I put them in these big trays and my goal was to sell them like an energy gel, like a goo. So I'm, I'm delivering the whole foods myself. I'm checking it in the back, through, through the back and I'm stocking my own shelves and I talk to the energy bar set uh, buyer and we put in the energy bar set and there we have our, our squeeze packs in the energy bar set and I'm excited because I spent two years on this idea and here we are in Whole Foods and that was you know it, that all the hard work was getting it to Whole Foods and now we're on shelf and no one's buying it and I have these wonderful amazing squeeze packs and no one's buying them and I was devastated but rather than just give up I had to kind of be curious right? Why is nobody buying these products? I think they're great products. So I would stand there and I'd watch people shop that section. And what I noticed was that the people who are shopping that section, like I said, they're in a rush. They got somewhere to go. They got places to be. And rather than, than stop and discover these new products, you know, they might walk by and see a squeeze pack and be like, well, what is that doing where my energy bar is? Oh, well, I don't have time to figure it out. So I'm going to ignore it. And so they were ignoring it because they didn't understand what it was. And so rather than, again, then give up, you know, we, we tried another tactic. Okay, well, let's put these squeeze packs into little tiny boxes, call them caddies, and we'll put this stand-up caddy right next to our jar of peanut butter and almond butter. So that way, at the very least, we eliminate this, this layer of abstraction so a consumer knows exactly what it is. They don't have to guess. It's peanut butter. It's almond butter. And... And just by doing that, just by repositioning where it went in the store, they started to take off. Consumers started to understand, oh, I get it. It's a, it's a trowel size or a travel size of peanut butter. Or better yet, this is, a, this is a, a trowel size for an almond butter that maybe costs over $10 a jar. And I don't want to take that risk to try something I may not like. So I can try something that's more of an entry level that, oh, wow, this almond butter stuff does taste really great. I'm going to buy a jar and I'm going to buy the jar of the brand that I tried because I trust it. Or, you know, maybe, you know, peanut butter, almond butter has a lot of calories, a lot of fat, and I need portion control because I'm on a diet. I'm on a very specialty type of eating regimen and I want to eat something I know exactly what I'm going to get when I, you know, when I open it. And so it became all these things that I didn't necessarily understand at the time, but just by being curious and making that pivot, I think, you know, redefined us as an organization and gave me the, the oxygen that we needed to be successful. If we just still had a jar in the market, it, it I don't think it would have worked. Justin, I think that's such a great story, mainly because I think a lot of people perceive entrepreneurs to be successful because they did something major. They did something big and bold, where I think a lot of people like you do these little things by observing people in the store, for example, and being curious about why they're passing up the product. I think it's those little things that people do that really make the product eventually get traction. 
Yeah, no doubt. Justin, let's get personal on a few topics. Many aspiring entrepreneurs don't know what they don't know before starting a business. They're sort of unconsciously incompetent, not as fully prepared as they thought they should be in starting a business. Before you started Justin's, to what extent were your previous skills and your knowledge aligned with your task of launching a food brand? Let's say on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being very aligned, how did your previous skills and knowledge fit with your new startup? I'm not exactly sure. I was probably a five, you know, and I think that, you know, an entrepreneur needs to be a jack of all trades, master of maybe none or master of a few. And, and I, you know, I still don't know what I'm good at. <laughs> I'm slowly figuring it out. But as it turns out, what I am good at is being fairly competent at everything. So, you know, I, I, I can read and understand a balance sheet and a P&L. I can, you know, talk intelligently in a, in, a, in a manufacturing plant because I used to be a manufacturer and I know the ins and outs of the peanut crop and the almond crop and how the farmers, you know, assess the quality of, of their incoming crop and how it gets transported to a manufacturer and how that manufacturer, what equipment they need to use for production and for sanit sanitation and for quality and measuring. And, and I can also talk to, you know, and, and do a, go to a marketing meeting and understand you know, our, our, our marketing strategy around, you know, increasing our household penetration. And, and I can go to a sales call and, and talk to our buyers about, you know, our go-to-market strategy and, and why we're a good fit for their retailer. And, and you know, so I, I just have a, a general enough understanding about everything, which gives me a really strong, holistic approach to understanding, you know, the health of the business at any, any point in time. The, the, the challenge with that is at, at some level, I need to to step out of certain functions of the business because you want to focus on the things that you're really good at, or the business might outgrow your capability to understand all facets. And so I think really what, where I'm more competent is I'm good at finding the right people to help me with things that I need more expertise on and selling them into our culture and bringing them into our organization and relying on them to make decisions that they think are best for this organization. And knowing that I don't know everything and I, I can't learn everything. And I think that a lot of entrepreneurs can get really hung up on doing everything themselves because it has to be perfect. And if there's one thing that most entrepreneurs are, it's perfectionists. And so, you know, I, I've learned to, to let go of some of that and let people learn and make some mistakes, but give them the guidance they need. And, and I think that's really important and, and hard for a lot of people to do. What do you think is the number one lesson you've learned since starting Justin's? I think the number one lesson that I've learned is, you know, I see so many entrepreneurs who just don't, don't even start. And I feel like that if I, if I, you know, the company that we have today is much different fundamentally than the company A, I started with, and I kind of envisioned this company being, and it's, it's changed and it's pivoted and it's, it's gone in directions that, you know, I, I didn't, necessarily dream of, you know, to begin with. So I think that the, you know, the hardest thing is you just have to start somewhere or else you won't end up anywhere. And so I think that it's so easy not to start because there's so many reasons to, to not start a company. But if you don't start somewhere, you know, you won't make the mistakes, you won't learn, you know, how this, how your company can, 
can pivot or evolve to, to really meet the demands of your consumers or or to change in a way that's meaningful. And I think the other thing that's really fascinating is, you know, I, I, I was lucky because I was I was young. I didn't have, you know, a family or didn't have a whole lot of responsibility. I didn't even have a girlfriend, didn't even have a dog. So I had the time available to dedicate to really learning the industry and, and learning my craft. And I feel like some people, they don't, they don't realize how much time it's going to take. You have to dedicate uh, a portion of your life to, to really see this through and be successful. And, uh, and I wish it was easy. And for some people it is, but for me, it, it wasn't. It just took a lot of time. Sure. Justin, many entrepreneurs, including very successful ones, they have regrets in doing things incorrectly early in their entrepreneurial journey. And I think those regrets reveal valuable lessons to aspiring entrepreneurs. Since you started Justin's, would you have approached the business differently if you could go back and do it over again? No, you know, this it's so crazy. It's everything kind of came together, good, bad, right or wrong, the way it did. You know, so I think what was fascinating is we grew very fast because I raised money from, from investors and I used that money to hire sophisticated, smart people who had, you know, again, had experience running organizations like this and growing organizations like this because I had this healthy sense of paranoia that I didn't, couldn't protect anything. I couldn't protect making nut butter. I couldn't protect putting nut butter into a squeeze pack, you know, and so I had this paranoia that if we don't grow this is such a great idea and in a category that needs to be disrupted somebody else is going to do it and so i i had made the decision to grow this company quickly the consequence of that decision is you have to pay investors back and and you just got to figure out what's the right way for me is it traditional through a bank and taking on debt is it selling it to a, another group of investors and perpetuating and just you know kind of pushing off maybe a big sale or something like that and, and as a the organization continued to grow, our biggest Achilles heel, what kept me up at night was food safety. And I wanted to make sure that we never, you know, had a recall that would, that would, you know, be the end of us or that we would never mislabel something that could get someone sick or confuse that, you know, our public. So, so even at the end, when we were thinking about, you know, what would be the, the perfect partner for us? It was around security and it was around making sure that I can secure this organization. And in 20 years, John, I may look back and be like, oh man, that was a mistake and that was a mistake. But when you think back in the context of when the decisions were made and why they were made, they seem like right the right decisions and they, they took you to a path that, you know, that worked out in the end. To answer your question, you know, I probably put too much trust in my first contract manufacturer and they um i always felt like that, that contract manufacturers always have you know their brands backs and i think that our, the, our first one didn't have our back and they got me into a food recall and they were doing things that probably weren't in our best interests because they they were going for whatever they, they just weren't doing things in our best interests and i think i should have been a little more uh, attentive to what they were doing, but I, we were so busy, distracted running the business, but that it was hard to, to to look over other people's work. So that was probably, you know, one one regret is I should be a little more on top of what our co-packers are doing and visiting them more often. 
you know, I ended up borrowing money from my roommate's parents and, uh, and then that didn't work out with my roommate and I, we ended up not working together and he was very upset and his family was very upset, but you know, he, I, I, he got his money out and he got paid very well for investing in the organization, but it, it ruined a friendship, you know, which is unfortunate. So, you know, you, you could make the broad generalization that you shouldn't work with friends or with family, but there are a lot of companies that are family companies that do really well together. So it's, it's, it's just interesting. Everyone has their own, their own stories and faults, but I, I wouldn't change anything. It had to happen the way it did. I'd say the most important thing that I've learned is how important food safety and quality is. You have to learn how to make a highly consistent food product day after day after day, and it's got to be safe. The last thing we want to do is are make products that make people sick that aren't good for our industry, aren't good for our organization, and certainly aren't good for, for people. You know, I think it's interesting that you bring up the food safety thing because there are a lot of wannabe entrepreneurs out there that want to get into the food and beverage space. And I think they just don't think of those types of things. So that's really helpful. Did your success surprise you? Yes and no. That's a really good question. I think that, you know, for an entrepreneur to become successful, you have to think big and you have to envision success and you have to really want success. And so I think that it didn't surprise me, but when it, when it happens, it's very surprising because you're, you know, you're always looking around and being like, oh my God, I can't believe this is working. I, I can't believe you walk into someone's house who's a stranger and you see their products in their house. And you're like, oh my gosh, I, people are buying. It's just, it just blows your mind. And it's such a, a wonderful feeling to know that other people are buying into your vision and that they're, they're believing in you, you know, but it's, you, you've wished for it. You've, you've asked for it. You've, you've envisioned it. And then it's, then when it really starts to happen, it still takes you by surprise. It's wild. It is wild. I remember when I had the clothing company seeing a stranger wearing one of my snowboard jackets, I was sort of embarrassed yeah. by it. And I couldn't believe <laughs> that I did not personally influence them or, or coerce them into buying that jacket that they actually bought the jacket off the shelf. It's pretty fun yeah. to see. What have been your biggest joys? What are you most proud of along your entrepreneurial journey? Yeah, you know, I think there's a lot of things that I'm really proud of. I think that, you know, the most importantly, I think is, is having a positive impact on our food system. I think that it's, it's supporting a system where where consumers can have another option to choose brands that are more sustainable or healthier or have better food ingredients or are transparent with their labeling. And I think being a part of that movement, I'm really proud of because I think that's really important that we really develop a, a stronger relationship with our food system. That's from, on a macro level. On a micro level, I'm really proud of the people who work here, you know, and, and some of the people here have left and they've they're helping other young organizations grow and they're taking the tools they've learned here and they're paying it forward in new jobs and new careers or starting their own companies. And I think that's really rewarding. And then it's also fun just to, to get the letters from, from fans who, you know, our products have, have either changed their lives or have inspired them to think differently or be healthy and, and all the other brands that you know, are inspired by our success. And so it's been 
it's been really neat. It's been really special. What have been some of your biggest frustrations? Yeah, you know, I think that things just don't happen fast enough. That's my biggest frustration. You know, whether it's, you know, you, you might present a new product to a retailer and 12 months later, it's on shelf a year later, or you might, you know, want to, to, to work on some new packaging and, and you have to, it just takes years for things to happen and it takes years for things to develop. And, and man, I don't, I don't have years, you know, I want things to happen overnight. And so getting people to, to move a little faster and to get things done a little more non-traditionally has been really frustrating and really hard because I think that there's just this this built-in assumption that things just take a lot a lot of time and I, I don't think they should take a lot of time I think we should all be moving faster but you know that's some reality has to kind of set in and I'm trying to understand the way things work a little a little better but I still think being unreasonable to get things done faster is still the, the right right approach to take have you had much self-doubt along your journey with Justin's? A little bit. You know, I always tell entrepreneurs that it's just as important to read self-help books as it is, you know, business books, because so much of the battle is just getting out of bed and being super excited and inspired to work, you know, and, and to, to persevere through bad days and to, to you know, to, to overcome challenges. And so, you know, I, uh, you know, I've, I've really relied a lot on finding positive people in my life and surrounding myself with positive people and, and finding that the, the self-confidence to, to cure the self-doubt. And, and when I do have self-doubt, I like to read biographies on people who've overcome things that are way more complex than making peanut butter as a source of inspiration. How has starting your own business changed you, if at all? Yeah, you know, I think that, the, the, you know, when you start your own business and it becomes successful, everything seems like op opportunistic. You just look at the world through a different lens where instead of seeing challenges and problems, you see opportunities and and it can be a trap because you feel like that you can if you've had this much influence on, on your little world that you can have influence on on everyone's little world and in every world and everything that you do. From you know the way that you know my, my children are getting an education to the way that you know I'm, I'm I'm you know having a shopping experience, you just feel like you know you can that everything can be an opportunity. You can do things a lot better than other people, and and sometimes that's true. And you can go in and you can be disruptive across multiple categories and multiple things and multiple items and multiple products, and and sometimes you can't because you, just because you're successful once doesn't mean it's going to be as easy again and so i i'm really nervous that you know i might fall into a trap where i you know I, I may feel like that because i've had success here i can translate that success elsewhere and uh but we'll see you know I'm, I'm excited for that opportunity and that challenge but again it comes down to passion and if it's something i'm really passionate about and i and i and i can have the time and flexibility to really make it work it, i know it'll be successful but again, it has to be have to have the time. I have two young kids. I have a very demanding, you know, life at, at the at the office right now. And so, I know that even if, even if I was really passionate about something and a problem that I wanted to solve, I wouldn't have the time to necessarily see it through. What have you learned most about yourself since starting a business? 
I love solving problems. You know, I think that it is so much fun because with a business every day, you're going to have a problem, a challenge. And it's, I think it's really fun to, to figure out ways to, to solve them. And whether it's a, you know, a, a limitation at a manufacturing facility on getting them to make something a little differently, or it's overcoming an objection for a retailer to get into their store, or it's trying to, to work with an investor to, to, or a bank to change the terms for you because of X, Y, and Z. It's just really fun to, to, to solve problems all day and, and to help people learn how they can solve their own problems. Who has been most influential to you in your life, either professionally or personally? There isn't one person who's had a profound impact in my life. You know, I, I will say that there's been lots of people who've had, you know, small impacts that when they all add up, it becomes a great impact. And I'm very good at, at specializing the needs that I have and finding the right person who can really help me with that specific need, who's, you know, a best in class for manufacturing mentor, a best in class for raising money type of individual, you know, and, 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 and what's really been fun is I've taken these, these learnings from mentors from a professional level and I now do it professional on a personal level. Well, I've, I'll find someone who has a wonderful relationship with their spouse and kind of learn how they've developed that. Someone who I think is a great father and how they've you know developed those skills or a great athlete or a great whatever. And it's just been really, really neat to take some of those business learnings and make them personal. Justin, it seems that nine out of 10 people just talk about starting a business, but they never start one. What do you think is your core driver? What motivates a person like you, Justin Gold, to stop just talking about launching a business and then to actually go out and start a food company? Do you think you're a creator at heart? You think there's something bigger that you're trying to do? What is that driving force? Yeah, I think everyone is motivated differently. And when I think back as to why that I started, I was just very fortunate to have a lot of things kind of come together at the same moment. One is I was longing and yearning for something to do and something to, you know, to, to, to dedicate my life to, so to speak, as a career. I was yearning for those waiting tables. I was unfulfilled working in restaurants. I wanted to go to back, back to school. I wasn't sure what for. I was looking for something, you know. I, I also had this drive and a sense of curiosity where I loved problem solving and I loved, you know, proving people, you know, kind of wrong. And so when, when people would laugh and I'd say, I want to make peanut butter, it just kind of inspired me even more. And then, so it was this sense of, of being passionate about the product. It was a sense of needing something to do. And then it was also this, this opportunity to, to not prove people wrong per se, but to really do something that I felt was going to be very difficult. And, and I thought that it'd be fun to be able to to take a naysayer and a doubter and show them, hey, look, you know, I, I can turn this into a profitable business. I can create, you know, a, a, a my own you know, livelihood selling peanut butter. And so it was really, um, I think a lot of things had to come together for me. Yeah, it's amazing to sort of see how the the drive to prove people wrong is, is really a, a key driver for a lot of entrepreneurs. I think that's great that you shared that. It's interesting. I mean, if everyone keeps telling you, oh, what a great idea. Oh, what a great idea. It, then, you know, I think success 
when, when you have, when, when things get really hard, you're probably, it's easier to give up because everyone's been encouraging you the whole time where instead you're expecting it to be hard. You're expecting it to, you know, not be easy. And then when you have that mindset going in, you're just going to plow through any obstacle in your way. So true. So here we are, Justin, in the Tell Me How segment of the podcast, where we aim to get to the heart of the matter regarding key issues for aspiring entrepreneurs. Justin, let's talk about raising capital. It sounded like you raised a little bit of capital when you started. How did you go about doing that? How did you make the request? How did you know how much to ask for that sort of thing? Well, you know, I don't want to say that it's easy, but it's for me, it was it was a it was a numbers game, right? So I knew and I had data for, you know, where I was selling and how much I was selling. And, and I, I knew what my profit margins were. And, and when you extrapolate the data, you know, you can kind of say to yourself, okay, well, I need to be in X amount of stores in order to break even at this current profit margin. And when I'm in X amount of stores, I can probably reduce my margin or increase my margin by reducing my cost by moving to a different contract manufacturer or getting better price breaks because we're bulk buying. And, and, and that goes in at this year and, and every year I need to, I need to grow by a certain amount of stores, but, but those stores come in groups of chains. So for the first few years I got in these groups of chains and the next year, these groups of chains. And as my sales grow and my, and my margins grow by this year, I'm going to be break even. So then the question becomes, okay, well, so if it takes me three years to break even, you know, how much money do I need to bridge me to year three? And, and in order to grow into those stores and to, you know, gain that distribution, what are the resources that I need to invest in to even just get there? So then you back into the resources. Well, I need a, you know, a salesperson and I need a, uh, a supply chain person. I need, you know, three hires. And so those hires are going to cost me this much money. And so you just kind of build everything out and you model it. And then you kind of understand, okay, well, you know, these are the retailers I need to be in. Here's how long it's take me to get into those retailers. And then you can kind of figure out how much money you need based on, you know, how short you want your window to be. If it's a five-year window to break even, you know, it's a much slower window. So you may need less money, even though it takes longer, where if it's a one-year window, you got to be in a lot of stores right away to break even. So it just depends on your profit margins. It depends on the velocity of your items. How, you know, how consumable are they? Is someone buying them once a month or once a day? And so once you start to do the math and kind of figure it out, it, it really becomes, you know, a very, I don't want to say simple exercise, but it becomes very black and white. Where all the gray is, is you're extrapolating how long it's going to take you to grow into new, you know, channels of distribution or new retailers. And, uh, and you're also kind of guessing on, you know, how well you're going to sell off the shelf at certain stores. You know, just because you sell really well at one store doesn't mean you're going to sell very well at all stores. And so there's, there's a lot of guessing involved, but you do a best case scenario and a worst case scenario. And then that's kind of what you use to, to raise money around. The first business plan that I wrote was a sophisticated business plan. The first plan that I wrote, I raised 40 grand from friends and family. And then the second plan that I wrote was for a million dollars from angel investors here locally. And that was to get us, you know, from, from at the time we were $3 million to, you know, hopefully much larger than that. Let's talk about working with a manufacturer or deciding on manufacturing. 
So do you do your own manufacturing now? It sounds like you do. And tell me more about how you found that original manufacturer that you chose to uh, network with anymore. Yeah, so originally, you know, when you start your business, you have to ask yourself, is there anybody else in the country who can make my products for me? And and, and maybe there are, but your your minimums are, aren't big enough or they don't can't make it the way that you need it to be made. And so so when I first started, there was nobody who could make my products for me because we were too small. And as we hit a certain scale and a certain size, you know, so, so originally I had to raise money not only to grow the business, but to, to buy equipment, to rent a kitchen. And that's expensive. And as the company continued to grow, I had to, you know, and I outgrew my little local kitchen. I had to ask the question, do I want to raise more money to build out a kitchen where now, because I'm a little bigger, is there somebody who can work with these volumes now? And if the question, if the answer came back, no, no one, there's still no one who can make it, then all right, let's raise money and let's keep making it ourselves. But I went out there and I, was, and I found I found a few companies who were like, yeah, you know what? We can actually work with these volumes. And so then at that point, I decided, okay, well, instead of making it myself, let's go ahead and work with these manufacturers and have them make it for us. So, you know, at, at that point, we specialized the business and I found someone to make our peanut butter and I found someone to make our almond butter and I found someone to make just our squeeze packs. And I found so then I would find the best in class across all of our portfolio and work, work with those people. So that way it would free us up from worrying about manufacturing from a capital and a resource perspective and letting them make it for us so we could focus on actually growing the business. Did you have to sell yourself much to those manufacturers? Great question. Holy crap. We, we call it a sizzle deck where we had to, we put together a PowerPoint that talked about why that manufacturer wanted to partner with us, you know, because a lot of these companies never heard of us before. So we tell them, you know, hey, here's, here's who our customers are. Here's where we're sold. Here's how we communicate, you know, who we are on shelf. Here are the, some of the PR hits we've had in the magazines and TVs channels we've been featured on. And, and get these people excited to work with us because we want them to see that, hey, we're small today, but in the future, we're going to be really big and you want to be a part of that. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about selling the product to retailers. You talked a little bit about that earlier on, but how did you approach those first retailers and how prepared were you at the time? You know, I think that maybe I was overprepared. But I, um, you know, the first retailers, I end up, you know, you end up just giving them anything they ask for because you just you all you want is for them to, to give you a chance. And so I I promised that I would do you know X amount of demos and I would stock my own shelves. And and mindful, my first buyer meeting was at a store level where at a Whole Foods where, you know, I met this buyer and he's like, you know, I was like, nah, you know what? We kind of have a lot of peanut butters to begin with. And I just don't think it's a good fit. And you're like. Well, you know, you know, just give me a chance, you know, like, it's like, well, you know, are you in Unify, this major distributor? And I'm like, no, it's like, okay, we'll get into Unify and then I'll, we'll think about it. So I go to Unify and they're, and they're like, and I'm like, hey, I need you guys to carry me so I can get into this one, you know, Whole Foods. And they're like, well, is it the whole, the whole region of Whole Foods? I'm like, no, 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 just one store. And I'm like, yeah, you know, we're not going to bring you in unless you're in multiple stores. So I go back to that store and I'm like, well, they won't bring me in because I, because one store isn't enough. And so they say, you know, and so they're telling me that I need to be in all the stores. I'm like, well, 
you know, that's just the way it is. And I'm like, whoa, 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 what, what if I deliver it myself? Yeah, you know, the problem is then, we, you know, I'm not going to be able to find it in the back and then it's going to be just a pain in the butt because we'll never know where it is. I'm like, all right, well, what if I, what if I deliver it myself and I stock my own shelves? Well, you know, then I got to call you every time you run out where I can, with UNFI, I can just use a computer and it'll just auto, auto ship and okay, okay, okay. Well, what if I deliver it myself, stock my own shelves and I'll even come in and check to see exactly what you need and I'll only deliver you exactly what you need? Yeah, but that's great. But what if it doesn't sell and what if it just collects dust and then, you know, I, I, I'm responsible for it and, you know, and well, okay, okay. How about, We'll deliver it ourselves. We'll stock our own shelves. I'll even deliver exactly what you need. And I'll stick around and I'll do demos to make sure that it sells. And, and I'll even give you your first order for free, one case for free. So if nothing ever sells, you're not going to lose a dime. And you can even take the jars home and give them to your friends and family. And at that point, the guy's like, it's fine. <laughs> I'll take it. It's, you have to, I, had to, I had to overcome every objection just to get started and uh and it worked and then you know that that one store was successful and it turned to three stores which turned to 10 stores and then now i'm going to, to the region and i'm talking to the region and and now now we talk to you know the national you know uh decision maker but it all started with overcoming every objection and being maybe even a little too prepared which I needed to do, but now, now that now it's much different, you know, now we're, we're a mature professional organization and, you know, we buy syndicated category data. We look at, you know, where the market's going and how our competition's growing and, you know, and, and why are consumers and how much they're spending at their, at the specific store and retailer. And we give them insights on blah, blah, blah. And so now it's very data driven where before it was very emotional and very, you know, from the from the hip and the gut type of, you know, presentation. That is such a great description of how it really is. That is super great. How did you set the pricing and did you make any mistakes early on in setting the pricing? Yeah, you know, when you're starting a company, you're setting the pricing based on two things, you know, and you have to kind of meet somewhere in the middle. How much should I be charging based on my cost of goods today? You know, and then extrapolating out to what the cost of goods could be in the future, because, you know, you want to and, and then, you know, how much can I command for the type of product I'm selling in my category? You know, so you have to kind of work backwards and say, all right, well, maybe my margin isn't good enough today, but in 10 years, it'll be good enough or sorry, in three or four years, it'll be good enough because I can't charge too much today or else no one will buy it based on the category. So it's kind of this gut decision looking at multiple factors on what you think you can you can you know uh, charge finally justin did i miss any questions that you feel like you'd like to provide answers to or do you have any closing pieces of advice for our aspiring entrepreneur listeners yeah you know you 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 hit all the bases really well and i think that there's there's really two things that i, I are really important one is you know, having a, a great idea is one thing, but it's being able to assemble a team of people and share the vision with the team and getting them all aligned on, you know, helping you achieve this vision is really important. And I think that, you know, again, if you can't, you can't start, you can't, you can't end up anywhere unless you start somewhere. So I think it's really important just to start. And I think that, 
you know, one thing that we can talk about in a future episode are all these mission-based businesses, which I think are great, but there's multiple missions for a business. You know, one mission can be just sourcing, you know, organic, sustainable, better for you ingredients. And then another mission can be you know, helping impoverished, you know, youth or educating this or feeding and creating a solve for that. And I think that there's all these missions, all these companies want to do so much good in, in, in their world. But at the end of the day, your business has to be successful and successful businesses can do more good. So it's, it's finding this balance between, you know, not doing too much at once, but also, you know, not being just another company trying to make money. So I think that the, a lot of these businesses, they want to do so much good all at once. But at the end of the day, we have to have a healthy business. And then all these things that you wanted to do, now that you have a healthy business, you can go back and do, and you can be an agent of change in certain things. But I think it's it's really, number one, let's have a successful business, and our mission can be about a healthier alternative or sustainable ingredients. And as we grow, our mission can grow because we now have a successful business. Justin, you've been a great guest offering some terrific stories and advice to our aspiring entrepreneur listeners. Congratulations on your success, for your entrepreneurial courage, and for sharing your experiences with us today. Well, thanks, John. I really appreciate it, and it was wonderful being a part of the program, and I look forward to being back on. Well, you've just listened to another episode of Product Launch Rebel featuring John Benzik of Venture Superfly. To download episodes of previous shows or for other entrepreneur-related resources, visit VentureSuperfly.com. Be sure to like Venture Superfly on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to Product Launch Rebel in iTunes. Join us for our next Product Launch Rebel episode, where we'll continue to reveal insider tips on how to launch and grow your physical product-based business.